So how are you doing? It's been a long day, hasn't it? No question, a long day. Are you ready for the massage hot tub session of the retreat? Yeah, no, sorry, wrong retreat, that's excellent. We, we don't do that here. What we do have is more sitting, walking, and silence for you. And we, very, you know, we have to acknowledge it's an unusual way for most of us to spend a day. Not something, for many of you I know, it's, it's new for you. Um, to be in silence, to meditate for hours on end, slow walking. And again, you know, honesty in advertising, a bit like Night of the Living Dead, right? You know, there's people shuffling around all bundled up, you know, wondering what they're doing. It's a strange thing to do. There's no question about it. But often the things that we might be worried most about the retreat, like silence, we've had so many people tell us that when they tell their friends they're going to be silent for a week, they go, you? How are you going to be silent for a week? But it's often the thing we love the most, actually, to just not have to engage in the sort of busy, uh, often complicated way that we often do in our daily lives, to just spend this time with ourselves, in ourselves, and basically for ourselves. So that silence and the opportunity just to be in this state of reflection, contemplation, and presence, it's, it's so powerful. Because in our lives, it's so busy. I mean, it's endless, right? And, and things are happening so fast. I mean, I can remember sort of 10 years ago, I don't know when email really started becoming prevalent, maybe it was long ago than that, it was like, gosh, people expect an answer by the end of the day or even, you know, within 24 hours. It's, amazing. it's sort of terrible how fast things are happening, like faxes were a big deal. And now it's like instant, right? Instant messaging. It's got to be, if someone doesn't reply in the space of a few seconds, they're like sending another one. What's wrong? Where are you? Why aren't you replying? And people are just growing up with that as, as a norm as a way to interact. And I'm sure you've all seen the scenarios of a group of people at a coffee shop or a restaurant, and they're all right on their phones. They're not even talking to who's across the table. So there's a way in which um, we're just missing out on that being present for ourselves and for those that we're with. One of the ways I know that mindfulness is becoming more mainstream is the prevalence of cartoons about mindfulness. And there, there are, there's a whole family of them, believe me, I collect them. Um, and there's a whole subset of those cartoons I call the guru, the guru subset. And in these cartoons, even though they're by very different cartoonists, they're always very similar. There's the mountain, which is a triangle with a little wiggly line. It means there's snow on it. There's a cave. And there's the guru sitting there, usually, usually a man. I think they're always a man with long beard, loincloth kind of thing. And the seeker has a backpack, and they're kind of often just peeking over the edge of this you know, ledge that the guru is sitting on. One I saw just the other day, that same scenario, the, the seeker has just popped his head over the edge of the ledge but the guru's got a phone in his hand. He's going, hold on, basically. <laughs> I check my email first. <laughs> so everywhere, everywhere. And this, this sort of incessantness of connectivity is, is so endemic in the culture. I read a statistic from the Kaiser Family Foundation that 8 to 18-year-olds spend an average of seven and a half hours a day using entertainment media, basically on their phones, computers, or whatever. And it used to be, you know, if you did something silly, maybe your family would know or your friends, maybe your class, perhaps your school might get to know of it. Now, of course, you know, someone takes a photo and it's viral, the whole world could know about it. There's that sense of intensity about this uh, connectivity that can be really problematic for people. And so to step out of that and to come here, and I hope that you have, turned off your cell phones, renounced that connectivity. I mean, for many of us, we can feel a little lost because we're so used to it. But believe me, it's probably one of the best things you can do for your mind, your heart, and your body is just not to engage in that way, to be with yourself in the silence, in this simple schedule, sitting and walking, the other things that we do, and in nature, 
One of the things we deliberately did at Spirit Rock is separate the buildings so that you have to go outside to get from the dorms to the meditation hall, to get down to the dining room. And so many times a day, you'll be just out in nature with perhaps a destination in that it's the meditation hall, the dorms, or the dining room, but it's not a very exciting destination. You know, it's not like you're really going somewhere and then the walking meditation. So a different opportunity here to slow down, to pay attention, and to connect in here instead of this incessant connecting to what's going on out there. What we can start to see, though, as we slow down and start paying attention is our minds are actually a little crazy, right? They're just incessant, going on and on about this and that and judging and criticizing and evaluating and dragging up stuff from the past and worrying about something that's not even happening. They have no shame. The mind has no shame in its ability to... uh, frustrate you and entertain you and distract you um, because we've trained it to do that. And it's this mind that actually causes us so much suffering, so many problems. I just saw this quote by Theodore Roosevelt. He said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit down for a month. So we don't want you to be doing that, kicking yourself in the pants, because we want you to be able to sit down. But we are the ones that cause ourselves the most trouble. It's not out there. And we'll be talking about that a lot. It's really what we do with what happens to us that uh, causes us the most trouble. And we learn that by watching our own minds, seeing what the mind does, especially when we take away a lot of the busyness, a lot of the projects, a lot of the distractions. We have this intention to be present. You've heard the instructions. You know what you're here for. What happens? The mind goes off, doesn't it? All over the... If we could add up the frequent flyer miles of where your minds have been to just today, we could all go on a trip probably because it's just going everywhere, right? Past, future, home you know, Hawaii, holidays, work, wherever it is that your mind tends to land. This is what we see. This is what we work with on retreat. And it's not to judge ourselves for that. We have trained our minds to do that. We've trained this habit of distraction. So we can't expect it to stop the moment we arrive at Spirit Rock. I mean, if it worked that simply, you'd just come here, stick around for a few minutes, and then go home. We have to untrain or retrain that habit of distraction. Um, But we can't force that through being averse to the mind and its wanderings, uh, beating ourselves up, trying to do it just through sheer force of will. It's only this willingness to keep coming back, to be more interested in this moment, even even in its simplicity, even in its perhaps lack of the sort of jazzed excitement that we're used to having in our lives, we have to start preferring that to the fantasy world of the mind's imagining. So we learn how to do that. That's what we're training for here. So I've already been talking about and using this word mindfulness a lot. Um, And so you'd think it would be pretty simple to say what it is. What is mindfulness? But if you actually ask a bunch of people, I could ask you, and I often do on these kind of retreats, or especially in day-longs classes, things like that, and I'll get a whole bunch of different answers. Um, and even if you ask different teachers, they'll give you different answers. Certainly if you ask teachers from different schools of Buddhism, they will give you different answers. We'll often have actual debates in our teacher meetings about what mindfulness actually is. And people are always refining their understanding. So it's not just as simple as you might think. Usually when I ask people what is mindfulness, they say something like being in the moment. And yes, that's true. But this is exactly what I want to talk about tonight, how it's actually more than that. So the word I'm translating as mindfulness is sati in Pali. Pali is the language these teachings were written down in um, about 500 years after the Buddha died, so now, you know, close to 2,000 years ago. The root of that word sati 
is memory. So mindfulness has something to do with remembering or memory. So we often say, you know, being mindful is easy. It's remembering to be mindful that's hard. But it has something to do with memory and understanding our experience. So the essence, yes, is being in the moment, but we need to expand our understanding of mindfulness if we're truly wanting to practice it as the Buddha taught it, as these teachings understand it. So I would say that mindfulness is an inner knowing, an outer connectedness. So are you knowing what you're happening, but you know that you're knowing. And that's a subtle distinction, but it brings a clarity to the mindfulness that's more than just being mindful. Because you could say an animal is mindful. If you've watched the squirrels or even the lizards or the birds, they have a mindfulness, right? They're very in the moment and aware of what's happening. There's often some fear because they're looking out for predators. So there's a kind of mindfulness there that animals have. Um, Someone who's not trained in this practice could be mindful. A burglar creeping uh, in a house trying to steal something could be very mindful but they're not practicing what the Buddha taught. Because there's some kind of reflectiveness or recognition. It doesn't have to be heavy-handed. It's not like, oh, I'm mindful, I know I'm mindful. I'm mindful, I know I'm mindful. But as you tune into this quality, this aspect of mindfulness becomes clearer. And it brings with us what we call right understanding. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. This kind of mindfulness doesn't take much effort. One of my teachers likes to have us do this example. So just touch your hands together, just simply like this. You can feel them touching, right? As soon as you do that, you feel that. And if I point your direct uh, attention to it, it's there, right? So that's mindfulness. That's the sort of bare knowing that most people talk about. You can put your hands down. And then uh, a second... um, refinement of that. So most of you have your eyes open, right? You, and so you're seeing me. If your eyes are working, you'll see what's in front of you. So you're seeing me. Now just reflect that you know that you're seeing me. You feel a subtle difference of just, oh, seeing. I know I'm seeing, as opposed to it just happening. When it's just happening, that's really the factor of vijnana or consciousness. And that, it's a whole thing to talk about that. But it's just that um, bare knowing that happens at any of the six sense doors very automatically. When they're functioning, the ear will hear, the eyes will see, the touch will happen, taste, etc. So you were seeing, that could be just vijnana, but the mindfulness, you know that you're seeing. And you even might say, know that you're seeing Sally or the teacher or who's speaking. Do you get that little, it's just a little bit extra. And again, we don't have to kind of be heavy-handed about that, but that's what makes the difference between just bare awareness and true mindfulness. When the Buddha talked about mindfulness, he used this term samasati. And sama is, again, a Pali word that prefixes each of the Uh, qualities or factors on the Eightfold Path. We'll probably talk more about that later in the treat. These are um, areas of practice and understanding that we refine in the Buddha's teaching. And Sama means something like whole or right, not as in right or wrong, but is onward leading, perfected, uh, beneficial, has all these kind of qualities, um, true, conducive to liberation. So samasati means the kind of mindfulness that leads to liberation, the kind of mindfulness that's onward leading, as we say here, meaning leads to more happiness, less suffering. This is a a refinement of this just being in the moment that we often think of um, as mindfulness. So you could say that the power or an aspect of this kind of mindfulness, samasati, and even the purpose of this kind of mindfulness is to develop wholesome qualities, decrease unwholesome ones, and develop insight. 
This is called insight meditation, right? You've probably heard that term. Vipassana is again the Pali, and we translate that as insight or seeing clearly. It means to know the truth of things. And again, we'll be talking more about this as the retreat goes on. So in this practice, we develop insight. We develop insight on two main levels. The first is personal, meaning we start to understand this mind in this body in the way that it's unique, it's, its conditioning, its habits, its reactivities, the places where it knows joy and happiness and the places where it's contracted and suffered. And through that understanding, we can actually bring more skillfulness to that, that experience of this particular mind and body. But we also start to see on what we might call the impersonal level. And that's where we open to what's true for everyone and everything. The universal nature of experience. One common way of talking about this is to know the three characteristics. And we'll talk again more about this in like a coming attractions talk tonight. A few nights we'll be talking about these three characteristics, marks of existence that are said to be true of every conditioned thing. You, me, the glass, the clock, the floor, the building. They're impermanent, unsatisfactory, and then there's nothing solid. Uh, They don't abide independently. They arise out of conditions. These are said to be the three characteristics. So these two go hand in hand to bring greater understanding and greater freedom to our minds and hearts as we see on this personal and impersonal level. But this kind of seeing will only happen when we develop samasati, when we go beyond just knowing what's happening. One of my teachers, Sadhu Tejani, I just sat a two-week retreat with him, actually, right here at Spirit Rock. He's a very um, interesting and powerful teacher. He has an entire book he's written where he says awareness alone is not enough. And he's using awareness here synonymous with mindfulness. Basically, mindfulness alone is not enough. He says that it needs wisdom. It needs this kind of understanding. And we get that wisdom through a sort of penetration into the context, the situation, the conditions within which this experience is arising. As we see more clearly, we're able to bring understanding. Again, from just this mind-body experience, we're not talking about studying in books, the kind of wisdom you get from, from l- learning or studying. We're learning and studying here, this so again, Sayadaw Tejaniya would say things like, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. It's working if we're actually improving our minds. And again, not just through learning, remembering facts, but its ability to be present and to, to, to respond wisely to experience. So the work of awareness is just to know. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. And so there's this training that happens as we practice this kind of mindfulness, where we're learning in the moment what leads to suffering for ourselves and others, and what leads to letting go of suffering or decreasing suffering. So this practice is really about turning the attention inwards to understand this mind and body so we increase the capacity we have for happiness and well-being, and we decrease the moments of suffering. And by doing that for ourselves, we naturally then expand or offer that to others. As our mind is less conflicted, less in torment, we're less likely to torment others with this mind. So it's not something we do just for our own benefit, but really it does benefit those we come in contact with. And I actually believe, you know, there's a ripple effect that we can't even know about. So we use our sense of presence to learn in this way. I often read this poem by Mary Oliver, um, a great poet, because it just speaks to this kind of learning and the title gives it away. It's called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, 
to lose myself inside this soft world. And I take that to be her inner experience, learning from that, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. And we could extrapolate from that just simply walking back and forth, the simplicity of the retreat. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. So this sense of presence and learning from what is revealed to us as we pay attention in this very uh, intimate way, very connected way. So this kind of wisdom that gets developed doesn't just happen by being in the moment. Being in the moment is essential because that is where everything is happening. But there are actually very challenging um, uh, experiences that people can have with damage to the, from out of damage to the brain or illness where they're so in the moment they have no past or future and they can't really function very well. So we don't want to reify this being in the moment because we need to learn from the past and have a sense of direction for the future. And the Buddha talked about this often. We call it the three times. As I said, being in the moment here is where we need to be grounded to have this reflection. We don't want, we're not talking about being lost in the past or anxious and worried about the future. We need to be here now. Jack Cornfield always says, there's a sign in Las Vegas that says, you have to be present to win. And it's a bit like meditation, you know, unless you're really here, you're not going to know what's happening. Just like Mary Oliver was saying, you have to be really present to, to receive the gifts of nature, the beauty, the joy. So from this present moment, um, that's, the, that's the foundation. But what happens so quickly, right? We're present, we're connected with the breath, with the body, sounds, whatever, a step, and then we're gone. And we could be gone for a second, or we could be gone for right many moments. Anyone want to confess how many moments might be gone for? Many, many moments, right? You sometimes wake up and half the day's gone. Oh, right, I'm meant to be meditating, you know? Minutes can go by, half a sitting, or, you know, oh, that went quickly, That's that, that was good, and you realize you were just off fantasy land, dreaming. But at some point, you wake up, right? Oh, oh, mindfulness, medit- meditation, spirit rock, you know, sitting, cushion, walking, whatever it is, you come back. It's very typical that we want to figure out or berate ourselves for why or how we got lost, right? I think that's kind of inconsequential because it'll happen and it doesn't matter how it happens, it'll happen a million times. What I'm more interested in is why you came back and how you came back and what you do with that moment. Now, even as I say that, I don't think we can really know how or why we came back. Because when we're lost, we're lost, right? You know, I have another friend, teacher, who always says, what's the practice for when you're lost, for when you're distracted? What, what, what do you do when you're distracted? Well, nothing, right? Because you're distracted. You don't have a clue. But when you come back into mindfulness, that's when you can actually be an active participant in the meditation. And what's helpful to do then is not beat yourself up for how long you've been gone, not do some evaluation about what a terrible meditator you are and you'll never get this and you don't know how to do it and everyone else does but you don't or whatever way your mind goes with that. But it's like, oh, what? Great. Be appreciative that you're mindful now. Actually recognize that mindfulness is present. That's really important. And then look at what the mind and body feel like in that moment. And so sometimes that can be a little bit reflective, and that's where I'm talking about learning from the past. Where was I? What were the conditions that 
led me to this moment. And by that, I don't mean this big rumination about, oh, I thought of this and that reminded me of that. You know, we can do this kind of leapfrogging thing where it's amazing how you had one thought and you ended up in second grade at that time when you failed the math test or whatever. That's not so helpful. It's just a momentary glance of, all right, I was obsessing about the past or I was trying to figure out a problem or I was remembering, you know, my sister who's not doing well. You can just know it in a moment where the mind was. And you also take stock of what was the kind of flavor of that. And we talk about, and it's very helpful to know, these three very common tendencies of mind. In Pali, they're called the kalesas, and that's greed, aversion, and delusion. Pushing away, holding on, spacing out, kalesas. Sometimes they're translated as the torments of mind or the poisons of mind, the afflictions or afflictive states. They're just basically negative states of mind. Recognizing, was one or a mixture of those present? And sometimes you don't even need to definitively have an answer. You just kind of know, you know, you were struggling in some way. It's more the asking that's important. So you see, you were just lost in this kind of struggle with this afflictive state of mind. If you can know what it is, that's helpful. I was really, that was really hard. I didn't like that. I was uh, pushing that away. Or I was in such a great fantasy. I was loving every minute of that. That's greed. That's desire. That's wanting. Or I just had no clue where, I, I don't know where I was. I was in a fog. I was just in la-la land. That's delusion, not knowing. So it's just kind of a shorthand for where we were. So that's the past, not ruminating, not, not having to make a big story, but having recognized that this is how we build the wisdom, how we start to understand our mind and where, what its habits are, how it gets lost. From that, we can make a wise response. If we were really filled with aversion, what would kindness look like in the moment? Compassion. What would it look like to offer a sense of relaxing or ease or letting go? If you notice the mind was filled with a lot of craving, um, you know, desire. Again, you know, it's the same kind of thing. What To just come back in the moment. Can I be okay just with this moment here now? Can I relax? Can I let go? Can I feel the suffering in the craving? Because even if you're craving something pleasant, if you really look, it's a suffering state because it's not here right now. You're saying, this moment isn't good enough. I'm only going to be happy if I get that, if I can be like that, if I can have that relationship or that job or that ice cream or coffee or whatever it is you're craving. So we feel that. And then we make a res- that's the response, and then we track. Okay, so you kind of, you know, and this can happen in a moment. It's not a big figuring out. But from that, we settle back into presence and we kind of incline the mind towards being with the breath, being in the body, and then we track a little, you know, did that work or did I just immediately get lost again? And then we do that again. And we'll do that a hundred times, a thousand times in a day, in a sitting perhaps. Just this kind of waking up, taking stock and reconnecting to presence. Uh, the way I describe it might seem complicated, but it's very simple. It's just, oh, what was happening? Right. We take a breath. We Sometimes it's helpful to feel how was that in the body. Often these kind of, when we get lost in this way, it has an impact. We could feel contracted in the face, in the, in the chest or abdomen, the way the breath is. So we can feel that. And we're always... Uh, having the possibility of coming back, coming back to what our intention is. Temple invited you on the first night, just last night, to remember what your intention is in being here. And so that's our kind of uh, guide or direction that we want to go in. But this direction is like a compass. You know, a compass is really active, It's never static. It's not like railway lines. Oh, I'm only going in that direction. Everything else is bad or wrong. It's it's responsive to what's happening for us. So we learn from our experience. This is how the wisdom comes in. And we start to see, um, develop for ourselves what's called satipanya. First I was talking about samasati, wise or right 
mindfulness, that develops into satipanya. Panya means wisdom, clear seeing, understanding. And this is the developed mindfulness. Um, these are terms, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa used this term a lot. He never talked just about sati, he always talked about satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. Sayadu Tejaniya talks about awareness wisdom, again using awareness for mindfulness. Satipanya, even, you know, again, it's not something you can manufacture or do, but as you bring this clear kind of mindfulness that is interested in what's happening, it naturally lets go of what's causing you suffering. It naturally increases your ability to feel joy or happiness or ease just by bringing this kind of clarity of mindfulness to your experience, being willing to see for yourself how holding on causes you suffering, how pushing away, even as you push something away, you have to pick it up and, and hold it in some way even as you're trying to push it away. So it sees that and naturally balances the mind and heart, naturally leads to more equanimity. So this is really the heart of our practice. This is the training that happens on this kind of retreat. And there's no one right way. Each of you will do it a little differently and you'll do it differently at different times. There's a story about Ajahn Chah. He's uh, one of our kind of lineage um, masters, a Thai forest meditation master, teacher of Jack Cornfield, very wise person. And one of his students came to him and complained. He said, I've heard you give a lot of teachings and you say completely opposite things to people. One day you'll say this and then the next day you'll say the completely opposite thing. Can't you make up your mind and give us clear, simple instructions? And Ajahn Chah just said, you know, it's not that. Well, he said, it is simple. If I see someone going over this way, they're veering to the left, I say, go right, go right. If I see them veering over to the right, I say, go left, go left. And I, I like that story because it really shows us there's, again, no right way. We'll each navigate this a little differently and have to do it differently at different times. But this is how the wisdom gets developed. This is how the clear seeing, this is the responsiveness of this practice. So mindfulness, when it's working, reduces these afflictive states, the hindrances, the calaces, the negative states, and increases wholesome ones. That's how we can tell if it's working. And it's not like, you know, you need to start, you know, clocking in, am I getting better? Is it happening? It's a slow process. You've had many, many, many thousands of moments millions of moments of training and conditioning these tendencies of mind and heart that actually cause you suffering. They're not going to disappear in a moment. But my metric, which I have no justification whatsoever for, but I like it, and I think it has, why not, some truth, is for every 10,000 moments where you were caught in delusion, of greed, aversion, delusion, it only takes one moment of clear mindfulness to actually release that. Sounds good, right? <laughs> You've had a lot of moments of the other, but the mindfulness is really powerful. And it's that clear seeing that brings the insight. And insight can, even though I keep saying it, it'll take time, in, when it actually happens, it's timeless. In a moment, you can see through a pattern and completely let it go. And that's why it's called insight. Something changes in the way you relate to your experience, the way you relate to the world. And that can happen in a moment. But it only happens if you train this capacity to be present. So mindfulness is a training to direct mental energy into the present moment and develop clear seeing. So not just knowing what's happening, it is developing this wisdom capacity. Again, as I said, I like cartoons, and one of my favorite philosophers is Hobbes, of Calvin and Hobbes. And there's one where Calvin is the young boy, and Hobbes is his imaginary tiger. And they're climbing a tree. And Calvin says, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment, and they keep climbing. 
I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing just what we're doing. And then Hobbes, always the voice of wisdom, says, of course, you're supposed to be in school. (laughs) Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. And that's often, you know, it's like, I want nice moments to be mindful of. I don't want to be mindful of this aching knee or this, this broken heart. I want something better to be mindful of. That isn't what is going to bring freedom. Freedom comes when we can be with what is as it is and bring this kind of mindfulness to it. Uh, there's another one. It's, well, anyway. The pet calendar, and there's a dog and a cat, and it's one of those tear-off calendars, you know, where each day has a a page, and the one in the dog's got it, the one in the hand says now, and the one on the next one on the page says now, you know, and that's what's happening here. It's just always now, but it's connecting to the now with this clear seeing, with this knowing that you're being mindful, knowing what you're paying attention to. When we can bring that kind of clarity, what happens, what mindfulness can do is allow a choice. Normally, we are so uh, on automatic pilot, driven by our habits and our conditioning, that we just respond with a knee-jerk kind of way to what happens. This, someone says something like this to us, this pattern kicks in of reactivity, of fear, of worry, of resentment, whatever it is. You know, it's really like programming the computer. Press a few buttons, boom, out it spools. And it can seem like there's no choice. You know, that that's an appropriate response, that I should get angry or resentful or judgmental or fearful or whatever. Mindfulness says there is the possibility of reprogramming that patterning. If we can bring that clarity, oh, here now, what's happening? What, how does the body feel? How does the mind feel? Oh, this is anger or fear, or I feel contraction. Let me pay attention to that. Maharaj, that Indian saint, says, of what we understand, we are the masters. Of what we do not understand, we are the servants. So we need to understand this mind and body and how it has been programmed and conditioned. But the good news is the fact that it's been conditioned, we didn't come into the world this way, you know, judgmental and critical or fearful. Little babies, we thought it was all great, right? You know, hopefully we had uh, at that young age a sense of being taken care of. I know some some babies don't, but most of us had that. Um, We've learned how to be self-critical, judgmental, fearful, angry. But the fact that we've learned it means we can unlearn it if we bring this kind of wisdom in. And so we start to track our experience. This is what we do on retreat. If, and so we see for ourselves very clearly, because we don't have any distractions. If we dwell on these kind of thoughts, these kind of memories, this is where I'll end up. Contracted, fearful, judgmental, worried, anxious. If I let go, if I acknowledge, you know, that this is what's happening, but I don't get so identified with it, I don't blame myself, judge myself, try to fix it, try to change the past, then more peace and calm and acceptance can be happening, can be developed. So the practice can, is, can be as simple as asking these questions, whether you ask them consciously or just through closer connection. What's happening and how am I relating to it? And what am I learning from it? How am I understanding this process as it's unfolding? And when I say this, it's not about going overboard with questions, trying to figure things out. This is an intuitive questioning. This is a getting more intimate with our experience. And often we just say, oh, uh, you know, as I said, we're, lo- we're really caught in some story, some memory, some idea about something. And we wake up, we come into mindfulness, and there's just that moment, oh, what was happening? Oh, right, work, family. And you feel, just drop into the body. Don't go trying to figure out what you should do or shouldn't have done or needs to happen. What does it feel like right now? The contraction, the, the tightness. So we get curious, you know, what's feeding 
these afflictive states? How are we doing that to ourselves? And also really to notice, because this will also happen in your time here, how the positive states grow. A sense of kindness or compassion or connection or patience or openness or softness or gratitude. We need to notice that just as much as we notice the difficult ones. And what I really want to highlight tonight is that mindfulness, as we teach it here, is not a passive practice. You don't just sit here and say, oh, now I'm really sleepy, or now I'm really sad, and that's just the truth of things, that's the way things are, and I just sort of sit and swim in the swamp of that. It brings this alertness and interest and investigation to what's happening, a curiosity to it. How is this manifesting? What's feeding it? What kind of thoughts or moods or emotions? Knowing that, knowing, oh, this is sadness or fear, and it feels like this. Sadness feels like this. Anger feels like this. Another of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedha, will always say something like, you have to know anger to know non-anger. Sadness to know non-sadness. So we know these experiences. We don't reject them or um, judge them, but we don't get lost or identified with them. We don't swim in them. We just bring them into the field of mindfulness with this kind of of kindness. So the practice starts by acknowledging and accepting what's happening. We bring a kind, interested awareness to our experience. Oh, it's like this now. The body feels like this. It's aching or it's tired or it's grumpy. The mind has this quality of sadness or frustration or disinterest. We can know that. And mindfulness is always uh, that the skillful response. What's really happening here? To feel into it, the texture of it, the, the, the quality of it in the mind and the body. And then the wisdom can come in, how do I respond to this with kindness? We'll start tomorrow teaching the metta or loving-kindness practice. That can be a really skillful thing. If you find you're really caught or lost, the body is aching, uh, the mind is really giving you trouble, the heart is heavy, to actually cultivate an attitude of friendship or kindness can be really helpful. We learn how to balance, if we're really tight around something, to bring more spaciousness, more acceptance. If we're really holding on to something, what would it be like to realize that it's not here, or I can't have that right now. It's not happening. Can I be okay with things as they are right now? And then we can start to learn this key insight in this practice, that it's not what's happening that's important, but how you're relating to it. It's not about the object. We use the objects, and we can use any object to cultivate this quality of attention, but it's how we're relating to experience that's important. Again, Sayadaw Tejaniya would say, what is happening is never a problem. We make it a problem, and it can feel like a problem. If my knee's aching, don't tell me that's not a problem. It is. But really and ultimately, It's the mind's resistance to it. It's the aversion and the fear around it. That's the problem. Because you can always move, you know, rest the knee or whatever. But if the mind is just getting trained into more and more aversion, that's where the problem is. Again, Utejaniya says, objects do not meditate. It's the mind that meditates. That's why meditation is called mind work and why you need to know about the mind. So we're not training here to be good breathers. It's not about finding the perfect breath, having the perfect breath, or having the body be ease and com- be at ease and comfortable, to body to be a certain way. It's not even about knowing everything about your knee pain or backache. That can be helpful to have a mindful relationship to it, but that's not is what will bring the freedom. It's what is the attitude that we're bringing to that experience. If we're relating to it with greed, aversion, and delusion, then we're just cultivating more greed, aversion, and delusion. 
We can relate to the knee pain or the heartache with interest or with kindness or compassion, then that's what we're training. Otherwise, we're just feeding those negative mind states. I like this quote from Jacob Needleman, who's a philosopher. He says, Our lives are what they are in large part because of the weakness and passivity of our attention. We are taken, our attention is taken, swallowed by our streams of automatic thought. We constantly disappear into our emotional reactions. We are taken by our fears and desires, our pleasures and pains, by our daydreams and imaginary worries. And being taken, we no longer exist as I myself here. We do not live our lives. We are lived and may eventually die without ever having awakened to what we really are, without ever having lived. This practice allows you to live in your life as it is, not your ruminations over the past and trying to change it, totally futile, imaginary worries about the future, but here as it presents itself. In this practice, there are, there's a spectrum of ways that we can meditate. At one end are what we might call concentration practices, Um, that lead to samadhi. We often translate this word samadhi as concentration. The practice itself is really called samatha. And in that we take simple objects like the breath, could be a sound, uh, an aspect of experience, and we just focus on that. And it brings stability of mind, um, collectedness of mind, unification of mind, very helpful. It can lead to deep states. We call jhanas, absorption. At the other end of the spectrum is, a, is vipassana or practice or insight meditation, and that's where we're with changing objects, any object, many objects, and there's a real aliveness and vitality and a lot of investigation and interest. Most of us are practicing somewhere in the middle, and that's actually appropriate, a skillful way to be, where we're developing enough concentration that we can stay steady with the experience, but we're also, we need to be open to what's happening in all of the six sense doors. Many people think they're practicing vipassana and they're actually practicing samatha because they're holding onto the breath and thinking that everything else is a distraction. In this retreat, we'll be encouraging at the beginning this uh, uh, more reference to the breath and steadying on the breath but don't hold on to the breath as being just what meditation is. Meditation is training the attention to notice what's happening. That's where the wisdom can come in. That's where uh, the, the clear seeing can happen. So it's not just hanging on to the breath, but really this aliveness, this responsiveness. And again, we'll talk more and more about this. So meeting the moment with this kind, interested attention, what's happening and how can I relate wisely to this moment and this moment? So using the breath, the body sounds to collect and establish the attention, but really interested in the quality, the training of the mind. This is the essence of this meditation. And so it is about being in the moment, but it's much more than that. And I hope that's what I pointed to today. It's cultivating the habit of mindfulness so we're present for our lives in all of the range of experiences that will happen and cultivating the possibility of responding wisely. That means with kindness, with wisdom and compassion to what's happening. So I want to conclude with the words of Ajahn Chah, the meditation master who said, go left, go left, go right, go right. He says, as I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states, thoughts, emotions, moods, etc., are like the visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors very well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, 
the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here and you will know every one of them very well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. So at the end of our Dhamma talks, we just like to let the words settle into silence. So to take a moment or two before we move to the next activity. If you want to get a bit more comfortable, you're welcome to. You don't need to move if you're comfortable. But just to close the eyes, let the words go. You don't need to hang on to anything. The good thing is it's actually all recorded if you do want to listen to anything again. But mainly trust that you'll take what you need to take from a talk like this. And what's not useful, just let it go. Thank you for your attention. We have about half an hour for walking meditation. And we didn't put it on the the, um, schedule, but at the nine o'clock sitting, we'll always begin with some chanting. And it's a nice way to bring some energy to that last formal sit of the day, to sort of share our voices together. And it's a chant we can learn as the days go by. So encourage you to come to that sitting and it says it's half an hour we'll actually make it a little shorter because as I said at the beginning I know it's been a long day so just an encouragement for you to uh, come it's nice to go out in the cool night air it'll wake you up a little bit perhaps get a cup of tea do some walking meditation stretch a bit and then come back at nine o'clock for our last sit together so thank you for your attention And again, we request at the end of teachings, especially if you can let the. T- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.